0: Do, 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 Sopranos daring divas on a mission to uncover opera. Opera! Hello friends and welcome back to Operation Opera. I had a lovely chat with incredible collaborative pianist, and musician Lindy Tennant-Brown. We talked a lot about a variety of things, but some of the most compelling for me were the guruization of teachers, and also the idea that the void is fertile. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, Lindy Tennant-Brown, to Operation Opera. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Great. Um, I'm excited because I feel like how we met was so cool. And then sort of the journey that this friendship has sort of been on over the course of a pandemic and just being artists and from, you know, going, you were here and then you were back in London and then you came back here, you know, this whole process and, you know, all the questions that we ask, like, I, I'm just really excited to talk about what it means for you, you know, over the last couple of years, what it means for you to continue to be an artist. That's a big start. (laughs) (laughs) Or we can just talk about like, you know, our kids, we can also start with that or something else. (laughs)
1: <laughs> what's it like to be an artist in a global pandemic having yeah. lived in two countries in that time yeah one country twice um what's it like is it's pretty hard work um yeah to fill you in I, we rachel and i met um when i was working as the head of music for new zealand opera um which was a job that i'd uh, come to in the middle of 2019 um after more than two decades freelancing in london as a vocal coach and a repetiteur and a collaborative pianist um, and we met because rachel came in to audition for the company um pregnant <laughs> i found out later <laughs> so um it was quite a start to our relationship and um i was really excited because to hear rachel's voice in new zealand was really something um, to hear your voice here was great because we're not um you know we have a, a a number of really great singers in New Zealand but it was very exciting to hear a real proper true lyric mezzo come through the door and go yeah here I am so I was thrilled about that Um, and then I left (laughs) beginning of uh, 2020 so on the day that New Zealand went into the first uh, lockdown um, I got the last flight out with my two little girls and we uh, took the long way home to London Um, and we were there for five months before I read the writing on the wall and we finally found ourselves back just south of Auckland um so it was great we Rachel we did a concert together last year didn't we um end of last year which was really last year or this year I can't remember the time we started
0: really working on it at the end of last year but yeah we actually didn't Perform until the it was the end of March.
1: It was March this year. Yeah. See, this is what happens in a pandemic because your, your oh time frame c- collapses. Like I yeah. feel like my life is concertinaed, yeah. like an accordion, um,
0: yeah.
1: and my kind of sometimes <laughs> it gets stretched out. Yeah,
0: and you're like, oh,
1: yeah, it's very strange. So this is kind of juxtaposition of of time concertinaing, but also. Your level of achievement being kind of stretched so thin um, that there's no kind of relationship between the two. Right. Right. <laughs> so the idea that effort equals reward or or some kind of payback, um, this I feel like COVID has disrupted that equation globally for Absolutely. everybody. I think, that and that in helps. the arts particularly. Um, so, you know, and we, we've we've fought against that here in New Zealand so hard. Um, but now, right now when we're speaking, we're back in a level four lockdown. Um, having been so lucky to have a normal life for six months um, yeah, with no restrictions. You know, right. we did concerts. We had thousands of people in the in the hall at the town hall for choir and orchestra concerts and things. And here we are now back in our you know restrictions at, at home so right and um, that level four lockdown just for anyone
0: interested in knowing for new zealand that means every establishment is closed except the pharmacy and the supermarket
1: yeah like the a, petrol stations yes and the petrol so stations. everyone stays home except essential workers that's that's the rule and you can only send one person from your household out to do the shopping yep. um and that's, that's it for,
0: yep
1: yeah uh, so nobody's working if you can work from home you work from home but if you're not like my husband is a builder and I'm a pianist so I do a little bit of coaching on zoom which is horrific in That's every way I <laughs> so mean terrible. there's it's no so dressing funny. that one up we it's do a lot the of way, language the work. Is like, yeah but I do a lot of language work with my singers and I um that, that's a real benefit obviously because we wouldn't get the opportunity to focus that closely on text um in a face-to-face coaching but um but that's what we that's what we left with and so we make the most of it but it's still horrific <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah yeah um so what so i'm curious what have been some of your favorite collaborations like over you mentioned you know being being on the West End being in London, freelancing, I imagine that's full of incredible
1: experiences for you. its It's been very rich indeed. It's a very, it's been a very rich life, um, artistically, creatively, um, collaboratively. Um, and what took, what took you there? What took you there? Well, beginning? I left New Zealand in 1998 um, to go and study in Manchester, the Royal Northern College of Music. Um, after three years there, the college offered me a staff accompaniment position, um, which I I turned down um, rather on a whim actually because I looked around myself and I didn't feel confident that I um, wanted to look <laughs> the same as the staff accompanists I saw around me. Interesting, that time. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just felt that there was more to to learn. There was more to to be experienced um, and I didn't want to kind of close those doors. So in 2001, I went to London um, and I became a junior fellow at the Royal College of Music, um, which was a really nice stepping stone into the industry in London. Um, and there was a combination of extraordinarily Um, hard graft on my part and some very lucky moments um, (laughs) that led me to the career that I had there Um, so that's what got me to London Um, I went to the very soon after I moved I went to the Britain Pears Young Artists program in Snape um, and was loved there like just really the people there wrapped their arms around me and helped me to learn everything I needed to learn I had um master sessions there with Marco Martineau, with Roger Vignoles um who are two of the great great collaborative pianists in the world um and the head of music there is a man called Paul Kilday who's a Britain expert um he's a the Britain biographer and he just sat me down and said what are you going to do girl <laughs> like, <laughs> what are you going to do you have got a skill set across a really wide range of things what are you going to specialize in um, mm-hmm. and that was a very it was a very challenging conversation to have but it was also a very um, useful conversation it came at exactly the right time um, and and w- we figured out that my um, strength was in working with singers um, and very soon after that conversation in fact Uh, Paul moved to the Wigmore Hall in London, which is the kind of bastion of chamber music in the UK, Um, and uh, as the artistic director, and he made me, he created a role for me there um, and invited me to become a young artist at Wigmore Hall, Um, the first and only pianist ever to be named as a Wigmore young artist, it turns out. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So I was super lucky, like super, super lucky. Um,
0: Isn't that always the way?
1: right yeah and, and well
0: it just, like it has to be a combination it has to be a combination of tenacity hard work um and and somebody believing in you
1: somebody yeah the the kind of fortuitous meeting at the right moment is of great benefit I mean I had gone through three years in Manchester applying for scholarships and being I mean I could have wallpapered my house with rejection letters yeah. because I couldn't afford oh, to I stay have,
0: there I have a very, <laughs> a very big file myself yeah yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> There was a point, and I lost count. It was something like seventy something, and I and I was really, really angry when I saw people getting auditions for these scholarships who I felt were not as good pianists as I was. I mean, that's pretty rubbish. But there were some pretty rubbish, even more rubbish pianists than I was <laughs> kicking around. But actually, they'd been to Oxford or they'd been to Cambridge or they came from the right yeah, family. You're or, right, there you yeah, so as a, as a New Zealand woman, um, I, I just didn't understand that that type of society. Um, And so that meeting with Paul in Oldsborough was really fortuitous and incredibly lucky for me at the time um, and led to a lot of doors opening and a lot of people um, listening, which was really nice and what I wanted, you know. Yeah, Mm. yeah. That's incredible. So the, the most valuable collaborations or the most interesting collaborations for me um, in my early career came at Wigmore Hall. Um, so Paul was a, Paul is Australian. He's a Britain a writer and he's a conductor. He'd worked as an assistant conductor at um, Opera Australia. So he, he he's a performing musician as well as a writer. Um, and he, in his first year at Wigmore, um, arranged a series of concerts of the Mahler song cycles in their Schoenberg arrangements. And I was really lucky to be in the ensemble for a lot of those concerts. Um, and Paul commissioned young composers to write new arrangements of the Mala song cycles. And, you know, it just blossomed from there. And so those first few years, um, it was probably the mid-2000s, um, when I was really lucky to share the stage with some really interesting and challenging people who who asked really big questions of the music and forced me to get my head into that zone really fast um so that yeah those, those are the, those are the kinds of questions would you say like
0: what what is what does that look like
1: like well you know I I was a, a recent graduate and I had been really lucky at Manchester to play in song classes with an amazing man called John Cameron. So John was an Australian bass baritone, baritone. Um, He entertained the troops during World War II. um, Mm -hmm. And he was one of the most well-respected oratorio singers in the UK following the war. Um, His recordings of um, Dream of Guarantius, for example, and Messiahs and these amazing, amazing epic um, oratorio works were his... um, stock and trade but he was also a fantastic leader singer and he coached German leader at Manchester so I sat in his classes for two years playing for his classes listening to him coach German song and Mm. he um he was I mean probably into his 70s by then well into his 70s I'd say but he was so he was so fearless in how he described music um he was Simon Kingleyside's teacher. So I spent a lot of time at John's house socially. Um, you know, we'd go on a Friday afternoon and go and discuss leader <laughs> um, mm. the merits of who was best and who wasn't and every now and then Simon Kelly I would just drop in for a cup of tea you mm-hmm. know I mean the, the, this so the, the sorts of questions that John had trained me to ask as a pianist or as a collaborator with especially with young singers um was was one pool of experience. And then when you take that into a professional context with people who've been asking those questions for a long time, then you know, you really interrogate the text. You find you, you, you stop taking things at face value. Um, and for example, I mean, I, I mean, how many times have prepared. I played Gretchen am um, Gretchen, um, Probably in the hundreds. And it was actually just a couple of months ago when I was looking at that poem again. Um, Just preparing for coaching, thinking, oh, look, I know this song really well. It's fine. I know it really well. And I was looking at the text again and thinking back to that time when I was working it with my home, just thinking, God, you know, actually, there are some big questions here. So, in the end of the song, Gretchen talks about wanting to die, like wanting to die from being kissed. And somewhere along the line, it's a really simple thing, but somewhere along the line, as a pianist, I'd forgotten that word, Mm -hmm. the wanting word. Um, and so to take that into a coaching now, you know, 20 years after I first started performing that song was just like, I was thinking you can never stop as a collaborator. You can never stop going back to the score, going back to the text, going back to the translation and going back to the kind of, to the bottom layer of what that poet or what that composer is trying to say. That
0: foundational um, layer, right?
1: and Yeah, like you can take exactly. That, you take that into a coaching with a young singer.
0: And you ask that question to a young singer, exactly. You know, yeah. What does that mean that she wants to die?
1: Yeah, like, are we yes. in delirium or are we in? Is this genuine? And what's the piano doing to underpin or underline that sentiment or undermine the sentiment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you know, those are the sorts of questions that I'm really interested in as a collaborator and I, I guess that period in the mid-2000s working with those people was that's when my brain started kind of fizzing with those ideas that, that there could be much much more available if you are prepared to dig a little bit deeper right. <laughs> you know, it sounds right. obvious but it's well, no, <laughs> sometimes no, you no. need someone to knock you on the head to do it you know <laughs>
0: I think I think it takes It takes exposure. I mean, my first, I talked about this a couple of times, but my, my very first time really learning how to examine a text came from my very, very committed coach from college who my senior year, actually, she only, she only took me. Like she didn't want to coach anyone else. She just wanted to coach me. And what she said was, you know, because, because we can dig. Yeah. And like, I mean, her scores, I, she's passed away, sadly, but um, her scores were so incredibly, like, uh, illegible. <laughs> like, she had so many notes upon notes, and she paced things in, and, like, there were all of these things, but there was so much detail, right? And it's it's in that detail and in that nuance that you find a true character and that i think is one of the beautiful things about leader singing Mm. right is that 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 process and like you know it'll be in this moment when something shifts right or over there or what right
1: yeah i mean that kind of work is the equivalent um of a pianist writing and fingering like one of the things i learned as a postgraduate student was how to learn music Mm. Um, and you know we we all kind of winged it, didn't we, in our early twenties about what you know what memorising really was, or how did you learn properly enough to do a performance or whatever. And you know one of my, one of the very big lessons when I was studying in Manchester was you put a fingering mark in every on every note. I mean, for the first six months of my course, that's what I did. You know, like I have scores. Yeah from that time where you put a fingering mark on every note, and it's not that you, you need it to read it. You, you, um, for me, I write that stuff in to commit it to memory. Mm. Um, I'm a kinesthetic you don't, you don't ever learner you know um so it's the kind of and and within that framework so it's also really critical that you that for me or oh, in it's penance this is how i teach my piano students is is that you write in your fingering so that if you decide that you've made a mistake or you want to make a different choice it's a conscious act to rub it out and write in a different number to make a different choice Um, And I feel like that's, um, you know, when I was thinking about the questions that you might ask in this session that we're having now, um, I was thinking about what my kind of goal is as a coach. And one of my goals as a coach is of singers is to equip them with the ability to discern um, and to be critical and to think about the information that they're getting from a variety of sources and then pull a fine tooth comb through that and then decide which bits are are um, relevant to their Mm. choices and which ones they're going to discard completely or which ones they might park for later Um, and I feel like that that the process of critical thought for singers and for musicians generally but particularly for singers is really a, a biggie um, yeah. the same as writing and fingering for pianists you know the, the kind of critical thought that goes into that process and the decision making that goes into that process is really elemental to becoming a musician I think yeah
0: yeah yeah I still have a memory actually of this coach and her writing in the numbers
1: yeah I I still do it not all the time but from time to time still and yeah for me it's the only way of laying down a regular pattern um in my hand so that so that over time you've got the capacity for nuance to to arise but -hmm. if you are doing a different pattern physically every time you play that passage then that's what's in the forefront of your mind is which finger am I going to put on this note what I want to be in the forefront of my mind is how am I going to play with the singer here Mm. (laughs) and literally play how am I going to how right. am I going to play this? Yeah. You know, not yeah. like what am I going to do with my hands, but what does what's how's the singer going to react if I throw this this one in or this one in or if I go on this angle or this direction or make this sound, you know? And mm. if you're worrying about your your fingers going down on the notes, then you you can't have your mind free to to do the actual play in a commas, right? Um, which is what collaboration is all about. Surely, right.
0: surely <laughs> being able to play, <laughs> yes, surely, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I agree <laughs> um so what so so you're working a lot probably with some young singers now right because you're coaching so at, I a, teach at the kids, university right? and right yeah this is wonderful um and amazing for those kids <laughs> and I hope that they appreciate you um very kind of you to say oh through. it's
1: true um
0: and but I I think about that like with young singers what what would you love them to do more and what what surprises you in that sort of happy way when when these young singers come in to coach with you
1: so what i i'm coaching master's students at the university of auckland and at the moment i have four in my studio last semester i had three so i'm very like i'm new in this role in a university Um, what surprises me um, in a good way is their openness um, and their willingness to try new things. Um, I have really appreciated their um their warmth to new ideas, if you like. Um, they're not um too far dug into one way of doing things, yes. um, which I appreciate very much. Um it's easy to provoke thoughts in that context um, which is my job in a way. Humility um, is, is the best teacher. Yeah my, my what my goals are with with these students are to um, I've forgotten the question can you say the question again? Yeah no no <laughs> it's totally
0: fine I, I had a moment earlier I was like oh, I had this great story and then I was like crap I forgot it <laughs>
1: no 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 there was something really important that you asked and I was like I'm gonna answer that because I asked
0: you know what are the things you love that young singers bring yeah in a coaching and what are the things that, that that are hard that you wish that that they did either that they didn't or that they understood
1: okay okay so uh-huh. what I want them to be like wh- what I want these young kids to be is actually much more confident in their own choices
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: and I think we have in the world at the moment this slight, issue with training of singers, which is that there's a sort of guruization that has happened among singing teachers and singing students, um, where singing teachers are invested in this idea that they have all the answers for their students and that um, those students can't possibly find information from other sources because other sources might be threatening or detrimental to the technique that that teacher is teaching. Now, that works really well when there's a really big industry able to support all of the graduates from music colleges around the world and offer them all meaningful employment in the opera industry
0: oh yeah that happens Um, all the time
1: because that level of specialization (laughs) and that level of of um blinkedness (laughs) (laughs) is brilliant because you know if you want a specific like one voice type to do a specific one voice role then you will have a some options now unfortunately since 1970s the opera industry globally has changed somewhat <laughs> so um what I want my singers now to have is is their eyes wide open um, in terms of the skill set that they need to leave school with um and there are some fantastic singing teachers in New Zealand and there are some singing teachers in New Zealand who are still really stuck in the whole I'm your guru and thou shalt not partake of information from other sources.
0: Oh, I, I, I know those, those teachers. Yeah.
1: yeah, and that's also in the context in this country of a lack of knowledge, particularly among singers and singing teachers, of the role of the coach, um, what a vocal coach is able to do, can do, should do. And how that work can complement the work of the singing teacher. And should complement. And should complement. There's been no yeah. history of vocal coaching in New Zealand to speak oh, of. Fascinating. Um, that's, oh, fascinating. That's and that's an uphill battle. A humongous big kind of elephant in the room at the moment. And there are some universities which are doing better than others in Incorporating vocal coaching within the vocal studies program. Um, I I feel grateful and lucky to have a little job at Oakland University um, with the vocal studies team there. They're a very nice group of people who are very open-minded and very collaborative as a group of faculty um, that's not true of every university in new zealand and it is a bit of a struggle to get singers to understand how to use a coach for example in that context um, because if they've had no history of coaching per se then how would they know what to do with a coach Right. Um, so it's it, yeah it's interesting so i'm sort of training my singers to use me well the the other thing that i'm trying really hard to do is to is to not build dependence so to build independence and that is that is a a real feature of that guru tradition is that singers come into my room and they want me to be their new guru right um, because that's their experience of being taught singing Um, i'm not a singing teacher and i'm not somebody who wants to see a singer every week for the next six years (laughs) (laughs) right right it's not my bag you know that's not my job it's not my role it's not it doesn't work like that so I'm training my singers to understand how to best use how to best use me as well so that's part of the job at the moment whereas maybe in the states singers know what coaching is you know they know how to use a coach they know what the expectations are around that and around a singing lesson like how those things might differ as well
0: Yeah, I would say, I mean, I could only speak from my own experience, Mm -hmm. um, but coaching certainly for me at a conservatory were, I mean, I love, I love my coachings because, (laughs) you know, it meant that it meant that we really got to dig into things, you know, versus a voice lesson, which generally until my senior year, well, I I had one teacher for a couple of years who was definitely of that guru mindset and like, Mm -hmm. and, and and I really struggled with that because, because that didn't speak to my soul. It didn't speak to me as truth. Um, mm. And I didn't like the fact that everyone in that studio sounded similar. You know, to me that, that was a huge red flag because mm-hmm. it meant that, you know, we were trying to please or trying to-, to emulate. Know, yeah, to emulate, you know, and, yeah. and like, you know, what, you know, who are we individually? And I think, yeah, definitely a coach. The coaches that I've worked with and the people that I keep going back to are always the people that, you know, sort of provoke the question: "What do you think?" Yeah, right. What do you yeah. think? You know, what do you like, think? What, yeah. what, what What does this moment mean to you? Yeah. What are you bringing to the table here? Yeah, mm-hmm. and you know, that's what that's what creates that element of play, right? Mm. That you're talking mm. about, mm-hmm. like being able to play. Um, with any, you know, with any ensemble is essential for truly being entertaining. I th- well, I- yeah,
1: and for truly connecting with your audience, yeah. um, for, <laughs> for those people to feel that you are singing in a way that, or performing in a way that connects with their experience somehow, um, yes. you know, for something to be moving, it has to be real, emulation or fakery is not real, so yeah, um, right you know the job of a singer is to find their voice that's their job and, to, and it's and
0: so fascinating because so much of song repertoire and you do you have to dig because a lot of song repertoire or even lead was created in a way that if you take it at face value or if you like try interpret it or the opposite if you try and interpret it really intensely it's like no actually this is something that like schubert wrote on the fly when he was like completely drunk off of his brains you know yeah <laughs> you have to understand like that's where this is coming from yeah,
1: understand it's okay to be simple sometimes
0: yeah like sometimes <laughs> it's meant to be simple and sometimes <laughs> it's meant to be playful but um, yeah you know, and, and sometimes it's meant to be really intense or, you know, but in, in that intensity, like there has to be that element of honesty and it has to come from a place of truth. And if it doesn't, and if you haven't been able to work out that truth between you and and your pianist, like, um, it, it it can be a train wreck, like just so painful to sit there and like slog through, like how many recitals have I been to where I'm just like, oh, you guys. <laughs> like, yeah. You know? yeah,
1: I may have played one or two of those myself. <laughs> <laughs> it,
0: you know, it's all about like, right? It's that give and take. It's, it's the, you know, the sort of, that call and response. It's all of those things that have to be there in order for anything creative to feel like truly um, uh,
1: impactful. Yeah, for it to, to be expressive, I think, as well. I'm not saying that there's no, there's none of that in the UK. You know, I worked in the, in the UK industry for 20 years and there's masses of that. Um, no there is masses of it, but it comes from a but kind of so many egos, right? Yeah, so many egos, yeah. and, and a lot of um, a lot of old school teachers as well, like people who've come through that industry in the sixties and seventies, and who are now teaching. And you just think, look, the industry's changed since you were a young graduate, and actually, um, the skill set that you that those teachers might be imparting might not be as relevant as it needs to be or it should be.
0: And even, um, and I'll go even further to say that when a teacher is doing that. I'm just going to say this. It's not actually what they need. Like you're searching for something and it will never satisfy.
1: I agree. You know, like
0: the the love and the, the passion and the commitment of those students to a specific way of being or a specific dogma Mm -hmm. or whatever will never be enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah you know and if if someone is a performer which Mm -hmm. very often a lot of these teachers are like they need to find that space where the truth of that is able to still be manifest in some way
1: absolutely yeah yeah i mean but that's the challenge for all of us at the moment is because actually you know even today i thought to myself how long can i dine out on my life as a performer is my ex life as a performer, thanks COVID. <laughs> this is this is it, a challenge for all it of us. Just pause. <laughs> it's just. No, it's a hard. challenge for
0: all of us at the that's moment, right? Like, like all, I mean, all of COVID. The image I have in my mind is someone like walking and like frozen in time. Like we're yeah. on our way to an audition, we're on our way to a rehearsal, but yeah. it, we're not actually moving. Like that's how I feel about this time in our lives. And you know, it's interesting, like. Having had a couple of kids and, you know, one of the things that a therapist said to me, uh, I believe in therapy that, ah, there it is. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that a therapist said to me was, was Rachel, you can, you can have it all, but you can't have it all at exactly the same time. <sighs> I know. And that's, that's the rub, isn't it? That's the thing. It's like, yeah, but I want it all at the same time, but it's like, Hey, you, really, you can't. You know, you
1: just, yeah, but yes. I, I'm not sure I buy that because I did really feel like I did have it all, and that I and I did have it all at the all at the same time, and maybe that's like rose-tinted glasses. I feel
0: like you can have. I'm saying within a day, like in a moment, like when I'm at a rehearsal during the day, that's mm. me being the performer, mm. and when I'm with my children later, that's me being with them, right? And there yeah. are nights where. I'm going to be up late and I'm going to be crap the next day and not really be able to sing. And so that day is for them. (laughs) Right. But like, so when I say at the exact, really, it is about the exact same time. And I think that that's what's happening in some ways with COVID. Like we have to right now, it's like, you know, 80% just treading water. And it's twenty percent keeping alive that fire.
1: Yeah, right? I feel like if it's if it's possible to have those things, but not at the same time, COVID has extended the gaps between having those things.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> you know? So that's it's gonna be
0: March of, next year, just you, know, you out the year out.
1: stretching But I think you know when you've like I've built my life and my whole kind of sense of myself on being a pianist and working. Um, working is very important to me, and yeah. I can't really work at the moment. Um, and so, you know, maybe COVID is, maybe the benefit of COVID will be that we that we we stop basing so much of our self worth on our value as workers, and we start to put it on something else. I think where I guess I feel stuck, and probably a lot of my colleagues feel stuck, is. I don't want to. <laughs> sure. I'm,
0: I'm in there. Absolutely. Like, it's like, no, I have worked my ass off to be able to define myself in this way. Screw you.
1: Absolutely. Like, screw yes. you, COVID, right? Yes. That's what it feels like. It's like, it's yeah. my job. I don't want to be anything else. You know, I spend my, my days trawling, like, well, not my days because I'm teaching my kids, but like my evenings, I trawl through these, you know, degrees as to do and study midwifery or to go and, I mean, I'm studying horticulture for fun at the I know, moment. I remember you know? that. You like just doing me. something. I always wanted to be a doctor. Could I train as a doctor now? I like I'm really old, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't matter what happens. I just look at all these things and just go, no, I'm too old. No, that'll take too long. No, that's too expensive. And actually, I don't want to. <laughs> I'm a pet. Oh, yeah. So it's really hard. That's that's one of the really hard things about COVID, I think. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: That so much of what defines
1: us is on pause. It's on pause. Yeah, yeah. And so, what do you do in the meantime? How do you how do you not implode? You know, when you take away those those um, framework, the framework that that supports your sense of yourself. And if that framework is work, which it absolutely is for me, yeah. you take away that framework, it's like a tent collapsing with no poles. You know. Mm. Um, right. So it's yeah. I think and I think for our industry globally I mean not just me but you know almost every person I know who who is an artist is in the same boat absolutely Um, Absolutely.
0: yeah I um, I started I started reframing how I thought of myself as a performer many years ago because I knew I wanted to have a family and I knew I wanted to be with them and Mm. I knew as a as a singer that the kind of travel and lifestyle would make that rather challenging. And so I started to produce my own projects because I felt like, okay, I will channel my energy into this. It is not the same. It's no. just not the same. No, it's not the same. Um, it doesn't feed the same part of me, but it is a way through in a way that doesn't feel like I'm you know, completely turning my back on the thing that is who and what I am, mm. right? Mm. so I think right finding a way through the pause time so that you keep alive the part of you that you know that is fed like
1: like well my um my therapist says <laughs> yeah. the void is fertile <laughs> mm, so this yes. is a nice idea that's the kind of it's oh, the phrase right. is fertile, the void is fertile. <laughs> and If you allow it to be, if you allow this time to be rich and full of potential rather than full of desperation. Um, I can't say that I've cracked how to do that. (laughs) But But it's a um, great idea and we're on our way. It's a great idea, you know, and, you know, even just to know that that idea exists in the world is better than it not existing, you know? Yeah. So that's a a good place to start. The void is fertile and you can't rush things, you know. I have
0: one of the first thoughts that I had as the pandemic hit and I kept seeing on my Facebook feed all of my dear colleagues who are, you know, performing around the world in all of these incredible places, just saying, and there goes all of my contracts for 2020.
1: Yeah. And over and over again. Over and over again.
0: Everyone. Just all these people. And miss my heart, just like, wrenching every mm-hmm. time seeing them, and just thinking um but this thought that came to my mind like that goes along with what what your therapist said the void is fertile um the years of waiting are when we have to dig deeper right and that we will come out of that with more understanding like that it was just this feeling of i can't wait to see Hmm. what people create when they have you know filled the bucket in other ways and are so hungry when they come back for the opportunity to be on that stage again yeah and what will that create
1: yeah
0: in what they convey and share and what kind of vulnerability will be allowed to be shown when you know by themselves because they're just so grateful to be there
1: yeah yeah there is that I think it's a really that's a really good way of looking at it and a really positive (laughs) way of looking at it um what (laughs) worries me
0: is
1: (laughs) is how many how many of my colleagues will be lost along the way um and that's the that's the harsh reality is that people still have to pay their rent they still have to put food on the table and um and if you the art
0: needs to be appreciated like yeah absolutely and 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 it's um like hey yeah gather.
1: Yo. Yeah, exactly. And not treated as a hobby, or not treated as a yeah. as a thing. You know, it's a, one of my soapbox things that I talk about at any opportunity, which is the the, the way that communities or, or civilization even um, places value or ascribes value to art, and its and its place it it and its value. as a societal good you know it's of its um how how do you quantify its societal benefits and and I feel like there's been a real lack of advocacy for that in our industry because we've all been spinning you know we've been spinning so much in the last couple of years and um I've wanted much more from the national bodies you know the opera companies Mm. around the world and the and the the concert halls and the the orchestras and I've wanted them to kind of try and get over that spinning head faster than us freelancers to, to step into that advocacy role at a government level yes. um, both UK and New Zealand um, and um, and I just feel like you know we've slightly missed an opportunity there to actually build a kind of bigger consensus about the value of art um, because it's COVID has divided and co- conquered us in a way um, mm-hmm. which no one could have predicted but I, I feel like there's Potentially a way out, um, if we're willing to kind of get that thought all together about how yeah. how we can advocate for the arts n- nationally and globally as kind of a as as of being of societal benefit or being for, there for society to benefit from.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so yeah that's a little soapbox of mine so. I think it's a great soapbox
0: I think it's really important a thought that came to my mind as you were sharing that I'm like well maybe that's what we should be doing with our time right now it's like figuring out how to how to set the groundwork you know so that you know when these things happen you know because I mean hopefully we won't have another pandemic um mm. you know some people predict that this is just the beginning um I don't know <laughs> wow
1: they do i I don't i don't read those newspapers eh? yeah no
0: (laughs) this is like the first pandemic and that there will be others and blah 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 and you know all this stuff and i don't know i feel like every hundred years or so something like this happens um Mm -hmm. and and we are we realign but but yes i do think that the government taking a vested interest in what music and art provides for the culture of a society Mm. like you know during these times of lockdown it's not like we're not listening to music exactly no it's not like we're not right like how many times do we have to turn something on you know turn some music on and just like dance or just turn on some meditative music to be able to relax and like all of these things are a part of what it means you know, to to cope. And that isn't a okay. no small thing. Yeah, absolutely.
1: absolutely, absolutely. I agree. <laughs>
0: yeah, so I'm not quite sure it. what the answer is because the fact is like we're actually performers and we just need to get out and do it. And somebody else who's much better with like, you know, laws and such <laughs> might be like yeah. attorneys. Do we have any attorneys that are also musicians? <laughs>
1: Yeah. I'm sure we do. There are one or two kicking around. They're yeah. doing a very good job to advocate.
0: Yeah. yeah. Most you know. of them are
1: trombone players, from what I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Heavens. Yeah. It's now <laughs> a good time to confess to being an ex-trombonist.
0: Really? <laughs> yeah. <Dun, dun>,
1: <laughs> yeah, really. It's oh, my, amazing. It was my second instrument um, from the age of, I think, about probably 12 through to university level. Um
0: Yeah. Yeah we used to talk about how the trombonists were always the one like the smartest ones like in the orchestra for some reason it was always trombonists. Really? Yeah.
1: Really? yeah, that was funny. yeah we not had... my experience of trombonists. <laughs> <laughs> we had...
0: <laughs> and we had well trumpet players no. Um... Absolutely not a dated no. one.
1: No they're <laughs> definitely not the smartest people. They're the loudest people in the orchestra that doesn't make yeah. them the smartest. Yeah
0: but like yeah the the ones who usually end up going on to doing other things and you know if they decide not to continue with the trombone it's true i know a lot lot of trombonists
1: have become conductors and like composers and arrangers and stuff like people who yeah it's like they don't have enough to do back there so they sit around thinking about what else they could do right (laughs) i mean it's only got seven positions how difficult can it be (laughs) Tighter lips for higher looser lips for lower (laughs) i'm seven
0: what do you do not that do do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> i feel i'm doing a disservice to all my trombone friends
0: no not <laughs> at all because it's a huge compliment like you know like you know you've got this brain and, and you're going to use it yeah, um so yeah. yeah so what would you like to see like in new zealand like in your crystal ball i know you've you've been writing a lot of sort of op-ed pieces and and speaking with a lot of different people you know, in New Zealand specifically about um, the opera scene?
1: Well, New Zealand lacks a really comprehensive national opera training program. Um, The UK has uh, a number of conservatoires that offer specialist masters in opera, um, and they also have the National Opera Studio. which is a sort of select auditioned group of 12 singers and three pianists who go into the program for a, a, a one year post postgraduate course. Um, and in New Zealand, we have traditionally sent our brightest and best singers offshore. Um, they do their undergrad degrees here and maybe an honors year or a one or two year master's program. And then they head over to the States or to Australia or to the UK or to Germany. Um, And that tradition is just because we don't have the capacity or maybe the expertise in New Zealand. I don't think that's true, actually. We haven't traditionally had the expertise or the industry to support that proper training in New Zealand. Um, And so I feel like there's an opportunity in this country to create um, a comprehensive opera training program um, that covers... A wide range of skill sets, not just singing, but also technical theater um, and uh, direction, uh, how to write well for stage from a composition point of view and from a writing point of view. So there's a there's a space there um, to be filled. And. And I think from that would come the companies that can offer the work um, to those graduates that. Uh, yeah, that's what I would dream of. <laughs> that's my crystal ball dreaming. I love um, it. Yeah, it's a difficult country to do that in because geographically, New Zealand is long and thin. Um, it costs a lot of money to to move around this country um, for, uh, on planes and trains, um, and we don't have the tradition of philanthropy that the states does, for example, in the arts. Um, and so it's a it's a new country. New Zealand's only a hundred 60, 180 years old in terms of its um, Western civilization, it's much older than that from an indigenous people point of view. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have a unique situation here of trying to to honor the history of this country in terms of its culture, but also trying to make plans for its future growth. Um, And that's a unique and difficult um, matrix of challenges. Mm um and I also have to put in a um caveat there and say that I'm a New Zealander but I left this country when I was 23 years old so to come back in my 40s um feels like moving to a new country um and it's new to me I am I'm I feel as foreign here as I did when I first moved to the UK um as a youngster and that's that takes time to um to process and to to really fully grasp the um, the context in which I'm now working.
0: But that's some hopeful things for the future, you know?
1: Yeah. Some ideas, some yeah. you know, plans. I mean, the, the benefit of, of being here is that New Zealand has this extraordinary history of training extraordinary singers. Absolutely. Producing extraordinary singers. I mean, probably per head of population, New Zealand's opera singers far outnumber any other country <laughs> yeah, kind really.
0: of high yeah, level really.
1: international success it's, it's insane. only five million of you so well yeah and only just, you know? just in the last 20 years there's been five million of us you know before that there was only three and a half so you know when i was born this country had three million people so it was you know my lifetime is the population of this country has nearly doubled um, mm-hmm. and the number of singers coming out of this country at a really high level who then go on to really good things internationally is extraordinary actually um so you know there's you can't tell me that that's not rich pickings there's not a, a deep vein of talent to tap there um Absolutely. so yeah it's that's our challenge for the next two decades in this country is is finding a way to make that count here in this country so
0: yeah well cool well lindy thank you so much for being with us and with elisa in spirit
1: um uh, i'm sure it's she- pleasure. thank you for talking to
0: me <laughs>